All right, good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well. I hope that, um, that you're enjoying our Anthem Church worship service this morning. I hope that you've been encouraged by the worship music. I hope that you find this to be a worshipful environment. I hope that uh, you sense that you're in a room filled with worshipers. I hope that you found yourself at some point this morning doing some worshiping. And obviously this morning has something to do with worship, right? Obviously just the repetition of the word there should clue everybody in that what we're specifically talking about this morning is the whole idea, the notion, the concept, the principle of worship and what that is. We're in part six today in a series that we've entitled Distinct. And what we're, we're doing in this series is that we're, we're basically sharing, showing what it is that makes Christianity, the beliefs of Christianity, distinct from those of other religions. What is it that makes Christianity distinct from other faiths and worldviews and stuff that is out there in, in the world? And we've, so far, we've worked through five different topics. So on week one, we discussed God. We compared the God of Christianity to the God of other religions. In week two, we compared the Christian view of humanity, our origin, who we are, where we come from, our purpose, where are we going, what, what's it all about. So we've been, we compared the view of Christianity to that that other religions put forth as far as our origin, design, purpose, etc. In the, the week after that, we compared the Christian view of Jesus, who Jesus is, to what other religions and other groups say about Jesus and who he is. And then the week after that, we compared messages. We compared the Christian message to the messages of other faiths out there. So the Christian message is that salvation is by grace alone. And other religions, in essence, to put them all in one big category, say that salvation or heaven is achievable through works, through our effort, and so forth. And then last week, we compared scriptures. We looked at the uh, Christian scriptures, which is the Bible, and we compared that to what the other sacred religious holy writings of other religions are. And I think that just in five weeks, it's become abundantly clear that Christianity is very distinct, very different than the other religions in the world. Like, there's no way that you can lump Christianity in with other groups. We're just too radically different. Too radically different. And, I, and I've been saying this every week, but there's this growing mindset that all religions are, the sa- are just different paths to the same destiny. They all worship the same God. And it's become abundantly clear that that is simply not the case. And I, I, I need to invoke here the law of non-contradiction, which I did several weeks ago. That Christianity is so distinct from other religions that either we're all wrong, but we can't all be right. Either Christianity is right and the others are not, and they're incorrect, or either we have it all wrong and they're right, but they cannot be both correct at the same time. The example that I used a few weeks ago is I'm I'm holding a Bible in my hand, specifically in my left hand. Either I'm holding a Bible in my left hand or I'm not. But they both cannot be true at the same time. They're mutually exclusive sentiments. So the same way, either Christianity, what it says, is true or it's false. There's no in-between. 
And so the big question for all of us is, of all the faiths and the religions and the teachings, which one is right so that we know which one, which one we need to, to follow? So this week, we're specifically looking at the topic of worship. What is it that makes Christian worship distinct and unique, different than worship in other, in other religions? What comes to mind when I say the word worship? What comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? And my guess is that if we were to just go around and start sharing either in this room or elsewhere, you probably would start getting a lot of different answers to that question. For some people, you say worship, and the first thing they think about is some dude in a loincloth running around a campfire. For some people, you think about worship, and it's a monk on the side of a mountain chanting Ricola or something like that. Like for, for some people, they, they hear the word worship and they automatically think building with a steeple. For some people, you have to have stained glass or pews or you can't worship otherwise. Some people automatically think music, that, that you worship is simply singing, singing to God or, or to whatever. For some people, they start thinking in terms of elements. So, well, you can't worship unless you have candles or unless you have holy water. For some people, you say worship, and they instantly start thinking physical postures, like, well, kneeling, standing, raising hands, bowing. So everyone really does think about different things when they think about the word worship. I'll tell you what I think about if someone says the word worship. I think of a one-year-old kid's first birthday. I think of a, a, a kid's number one first birthday. I, and this is a true story. Several years ago, me and Jamie happened to be invited to one of these unique soirees. Right? It was this kid's first birthday. And I literally walked away. We got in the car, and I turned to Jamie, and I said, we just witnessed baby worship. <laughs> baby worship. And, and this is how it went. This crowd gathered together to pay homage to this unique individual on this particular day. And they come bearing gifts. And they shower the child with a mountain of gifts. They're, they're covered in presents and in glitter and in wrapping paper and tissue paper and cards and balloons. And then that individual is placed upon their throne, their high chair. They're placed upon their throne, and there they receive an offering, a decadent offering, a confectionary delight, if you will. And, and everyone waits calmly to see if said offering will be acceptable to the one that we've all gathered to revere and to show our affection to. And so there we wait in anticipation and applause breaks out. Everyone it gets excited because the said creature sinks his hands into the pastry sugary delight. And they bring it to their mouth and they start enjoying consuming the sugary pastry. Cooing, cawing, indicating that the offering has been accepted. <laughs> and there's... Now, relief among the congregation because wrath has been appeased. 
And there's rejoicing because the one that we're there to celebrate is rejoicing. The wise men wish they had rolled out such red carpet treatment to baby Jesus. Now, obviously I'm making fun, just a little bit, of such of such events. I'm not against birthday parties. I'm not against celebrating a one-year-old birthday. It is interesting, though, that that child's learning at a very early age that it's all about him. But that's a topic for another day. I'll digress back to what we're talking about this morning, worship. That in essence, that really what worship is, is the celebration of something or someone. It's the elevating of someone or something. It is the giving of gifts of oneself in some form or another to this one thing that we desire, that we delight in, that is the, the, the object of our affection and our delight. That's, at the end of the day, what worship is. It is a glorifying and exalting, a lifting up of something. Every culture, every civilization, every nation, tribe, and tongue, every, throughout the, the four corners of the world, throughout history, has worshipped something or someone. You, you go and you read all the history books and you can read all your sociology books, etc. Peoples throughout the world, throughout time, have sought something to glorify to, to raise up. There, every people have believed that there is something that is ultimate, that is divine, that is worthy of their lives, that is worthy of their giving to, that is worthy to yield themselves to and to serve and to bow to. Every people throughout time have believed that there's something that is superior, that of, of, of surpassing value, and so they worship whatever it is that that is. And this is where religions step in. Religions step into this, this space and this conversation. Religion is nothing if not an attempt to tell us what it is that we should worship and how we're to worship it and when we're to worship it and why we're to worship it. You can say that religion is worship. Every religion is defined by its worship. So with, turn with me real quick, if you have your Bible, to the book of Psalms. And it'll, you'll find it right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, if you can find one, if you don't own one, if you'll find one of these near you, that's our gift to you. We'll have the verses on the screen. We're going to be specifically in Psalm 115 and in Psalm 116, trying to glean some thoughts there about what makes Christian worship distinct. But before we get into that, so I want you to, if you have your Bible, just hold your place there, either you know, in the book or in the app. Hold your place there. And what I'm going to do first is I'm going to just walk through a few different religions and show you or describe what worship looks like in a few different religions. And then we'll turn to Psalm 115 and 116 just to, to show what it is that makes Christian worship very distinct. So we'll begin with Buddhism. We've been talking uh, much about Buddhism, trying to get everyone familiar with what their religion says. Buddhist worship is very, very, very different than worship in a Christian setting. First of all, Buddhism does, is not centered upon God or even a God. So the Buddhist believes that there is such thing as divinity, quote-unquote, but divinity is not a personal being. It's not a, div, uh, a specific divine person, divinity to the Buddhist is an eternal, cosmic, impersonal energy force. A, a, a life force, but it's just it's energy. It's not an individual. There's no real thinking or, or love. It's just 
energy and this this specific energy this cosmic divine force permeates through everything resides in everything including us so including people so what the buddhist is trying to do is that they're trying to awaken this divinity that exists with dormant in them and that's what buddhist worship aims to do buddhist worship is looking internally so it's not god-centric it's me-centric. It's you-centric. It's, it's inward focus. It, worship in a Buddhist setting is a spiritual exercise that's aimed and directed looking inside of yourself to try to awaken this energy force that ties and binds the universe together. Uh, another way that Buddhists different is really very different than Christian worship is that Buddhists uh, believe very much so in the repeating of mantras. So mantras, it could be a word, it could be a phrase, it could even be a single syllable. That It's an utterance that's spoken and it's repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. You just keep chanting it. It's a mantra that you keep saying over and over again. And they believe that as you do that, and that's what they would consider meditation, that, that repeating of mantras, that as you do that, it gives an opportunity for that inside internal uh, divinity to awaken. And if you think about it, really, that Buddhism isn't the only religion that thinks that way. I would say that most, virtually all religions, believe in the repetition of mantras or the repetition of prayers or the repetition of ritual. You see this everywhere that somehow if I say this thing a certain way, a certain amount of time, then maybe I can get God's attention. Or if I say the same thing the same way over and over again enough times, I can awaken this divinity that resides in me. There is a, it's superstition is what it is, that there's a belief that somehow these unique words or syllables or utterances possess this inherent mystical quality. That's, it's like an incantation. It's, it's using this to evoke the supernatural and that somehow just saying it make things happen. Alakadabra. You know, it's like... In essence, it's just, that's all that it's saying. So we see this in a lot of, a lot of religions, a lot of re repetition, as if just doing it just means something. Um, the Sikh religion is the same way. They, they pray a very specific prayer three times a day. It's called the Ardas. And they do that right after they read very specific hymns. So in the morning, it's repetition. You have to get up early, take a bath. You read this one very specific hymn that they, they, they refer to, and then you, read, you pray the Ardas. And then at sunset, you pray three hymns and repeat it by, behind it by the Ardas. And then before bed, you do another scripture and then the Ardas. And it's the same scriptures and the same prayers every day at the same time. And that somehow if you do that, you earn God's favor or that you're in his good graces. So you see that this isn't only Buddhism. We have lots of religions if you just do this this way every day, so maybe you'll get God's attention. Or maybe something good will come out of it. All right, uh, what about Hinduism? Hinduism, they believe in what's called Brahman. And I shared this a few weeks ago. That's their name for God. But like Buddhism, God or Brahman in Hinduism is not a divine person. It's not a spiritual being. It's this cosmic, eternal, ever-flowing energy force. And, but what's different in Hinduism is they believe that Brahman manifests itself through millions of gods and goddesses. Millions of gods and goddesses. And that many of these gods and goddesses on earth have these icons 
these images, these statues, and you see them in people's homes, and you see them at the, at the temple, in that this use of this image, this icon, this statue, is singly what is most important in Hindu worship. It centers around this statue. Uh, they believe that the power of the specific god or goddess literally resides within the, the statue. And so what they do is that during worship, um, they treat these gods and goddesses as the honored guests of the soiree. They bring water, fruit, flowers, incense. If proper care is not given to the statues, it may turn out that the deity will abandon the statue and the temple. So the priests of the temple and the people are very careful to bring their gifts to the statue to, in essence, to keep the god or goddess happy. So without that, and the reason that they want to be near the statue that has the power of this specific god or goddess, they think that worshiping and looking at it and touching it and serving it, that power from that god that is in that statue will actually be brought to them in a very literal, tangible way. So that's Hindu worship. How about Jehovah's Witnesses? It's a, a sect that I actually have, have yet to mention uh, in this series. Uh, I'll call them JWs, the J-dubs. Um, we see them around. Uh, they're, they're around here. We have several Jehovah's Witnesses in our community. Um, it's a relatively new religious sect. They're only uh, about 140 years in existence. They, they got established around 1879-ish or something like that. Uh, their beliefs are very, 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 very different than Orthodox Christianity. So by Orthodox, I mean historic Christianity. So for example, uh, a Jehovah's Witness denies the doctrine of the Trinity. So for 2,000 years, the church and Christians, we have affirmed that there's one God and only one God, that's it. However, that one God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that the three there that comprise the Godhead, the Trinity, the triunity, the three-in-oneness of God. And I've said this several times this year, I believe, but here, here's just a, a quick way to unpack it. Each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each is fully God. Each possesses all the attributes of God. Each possesses all the, they, they share the same essence, substance, and will. Each one is fully God. Each one is distinct from the other. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct. So there's three. Each is fully God. They're distinct from one another, but yet there is only one God, and that is the beautiful, amazing mystery of the Trinity. So a Jehovah's Witness denies that historical teaching that does go back to the very first century, and they believe that God, who they would call God the Father, who they call specifically Jehovah, is the one and only that is to be worshipped. That it's him alone, and there's nothing else or no one else, no nothing, nothing else to be to be worshipped. So, by denying the Trinity, they reject the notion that Jesus is God. They reject the notion that Jesus Christ is God the Son. Uh, what they teach is that Jesus is a created being, specifically an angel, specifically the archangel Michael, is Jehovah's te teaching. 
And what they would go on to say, so in worship, a Jehovah's Witness would never, ever lift the name of Jesus or worship Jesus or talk about Jesus, really, because it's all about Jehovah, this Father, God the Father person. It is interesting, and I wasn't going to share this this morning, but I will just to, to rattle everyone a little bit. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness believes that Jehovah is the actual proper personal name of God. And they claim that based on the Old Testament. However, uh, and this is where it's going to mess with some of you, because some of you have grown up hearing that Jehovah is the name of God. Jehovah is not the name of God. You will not find Jehovah in your ESV, your New American Standard, your NIV. You will not find it in your New King James. You will not find the word Jehovah in your Bibles, with the exception of the King James. The reason why you only find the King James is that Jehovah is a made-up name. Jehovah, the word Jehovah was made up in the 13th century. It is the mistranslation of the mispronunciation of the mistransliteration of the actual name of God, which is Yahweh. Every Jewish scholar, Christian scholar who's ever done any work on the subject will tell you the actual personal given name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, not Jehovah. It is linguistically impossible for the name of God to be Jehovah. Want to know why? There's no J in Hebrew. And there's no V sound in Hebrew. It's a W. At best, it's Jehovah. And that's not even proper because we know that it's Yahweh. So you have a religious sect. You can only worship at the name of God, which is Jehovah. I'm like, no. It's Yahweh. We call upon the name of Yahweh, the personal given name of the Lord. I know that's messing with some people because I grew up hearing about Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> Yahweh Jireh. Yahweh. Yeah, you'll see in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D in all caps, that's Yahweh. You'll never see Jehovah in your Bible. Some dude made it up in the 13th century. In Latin, not even in the Hebrew, in Latin. Then it got mistranslated into German, and then from German it got mistranslated into English. And it continues today. So when we worship, we call upon the proper personal name that God has revealed, Yahweh. I digress back. <laughs> Any questions about that, please ask me afterwards. Or take them to Brent, our linguistic scholar uh, in our church. He would be happy to... Uh, to go there. All right. With that, let's move on. Let's get into Christianity because really we want to get into the scripture. What does the Bible say about Christian worship? What is unique about those of us in this room? And I don't know all of you. I don't know your story. But, you know, those of us who call ourselves Christian, who are followers of Jesus, what, what is it that our worship should look like? You know, should it be any different than Buddhist worship or Hindu worship or Jehovah's Witness worship, etc.? So um, it, there's no way we could do an exhaustive study in one day, but we're just going to glean a few things from these two chapters in the Old Testament and, and go from there. So number one, Christian worship means glorifying God. Christian worship means glorifying God. So we're going to look at Psalm 115, verse 1. It says, not to us, Yahweh, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. The first thing that we notice there is that Christian worship is God-centric. 
Christian worship is based on, founded on, pointed at, directed towards God, toward the one and only God, the triune God, Yahweh. So it's not about us. It's not about us looking in and inward focuses and trying to discover some kind of spiritual reality or dimension. No, we focus our attention, everything that we can, toward, toward God. The other thing that we notice in just that first verse right there is this huge admission from the psalmist who says, Lord, give the glory to yourself. There's an admission from the one that's writing this psalm, we don't deserve any glory, Lord. It all belongs to you. It, it, don't give it to us. Don't even share it with us. Like we're, like we're undeserving of worth and honor and glory. It all belongs. Every bit of glory belongs to you. Keep it for yourself, O Lord. We have this strange unfortunately normal human tendency that we love to draw glory toward ourselves and and when we do that let's call it what it is we are stealing glory from God to draw to try to draw that which belongs only to him onto ourselves as opposed to making God that which is greatest or or, or claiming his greatness we try to establish our greatness in this world we do this all the time folks how many times have you taken credit for something you know you did not do just to get a pat on the back we do this all the time we we make sure that we present ourselves really nice in public make sure we hide all the bad stuff so no one knows so that people will look at us and say man you guys got it going on Man, look, look, look at them. They, they know, they're right. They're model Christian or model citizen. Meanwhile, we know the reality of our lives. I t- one of my biggest pet peeves, and I can say this because I'm guilty of it, I hate braggarts. Like, I, I can't stand that person that's always drawing attention to themselves, not even when they're asked. Like, like I, like, and, and just, and I'm just gonna, like, I'll confess this, so because I'm not above it. So the reason I use the examples I do is because they're true to me. So last year, there's a bunch of us at Andrew Park, and we're at Andrew Park, and Brent's right beside me, and out of nowhere, for no reason, I say, "Hey, Brent, I was right at that home plate right there when I hit a home run once, and it went across the street." I don't know why I said it, <laughs> and Brent just looks at me and goes, "Is that right?" <laughs> And in that moment, I didn't have to say anything else. He didn't have to say anything else. We let it go. I think I walked away. Like, I'm like, why am I doing that? And then, yeah, like, he basically called me out. Like, so? Like, why are you telling me? And I'm like, that's, that's right. Who cares? Like, I'm really going to talk about the glory days? I was 13 and I hit a home run. Big deal. Millions have done that. NASA, NASA gets all excited. We built the Hubble or the Hoople, if you're Thor, the Hoople telescope. <laughs> Look at the pictures that we've taken. Mike, so you're drawing attention to yourself because you made a device that, that takes a picture of something that God created. And you wouldn't have had the stuff to take the picture had not God created the stuff that you used to create said B telescope. Like, it's amazing how much we try to draw glory to ourselves when, when it all completely belongs to God. People just walk around, well, you know what, if it wasn't for me, my workplace would fall apart. 
Because I keep it all together. I keep it, uh, okay. Like, really? Like, I'm sure there's a billion people that could do your job, too. Honestly. Like, people walk around giving their resume all the time. Oh, I serve so much at church. Oh, that's, that's one we brag about, too. I serve not only in one, but two ministries on Sunday mornings. Like, we... We throw it out there, folks, and it's because there's this quality in us that we always want to draw glory and honor and prestige to ourselves. And that's not what Christian worship is. Christian worship is lifting the name of God. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, Lord, are, are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Folks, worship without humility is impossible. We must decrease that he increase. It's not about acknowledging us. It's about acknowledging the greatness of God. That is worship. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. So how is your worship this morning? Are you making much of God or much of something else? Are you giving glory and honor to him to who it belongs? Are, are you, have you humbled yourself underneath the, the, the magnitude of who God is? Are you a distinct worshiper of the distinct God? Number two, Christian worship means knowing God. So look at verse 1 through 3. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 3. Not to us, but to your name give glory because, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases, we give glory to God. So we exalt him, we lift his name on high because we know that he is a God of loving kindness because he is truth and because he's the God who is all-powerful. How do I know he's all-powerful? Because he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. So we know this. So those who are true worshipers of God, we know God's love, we know his truth, and we know his power. And it's not an academic, intellectual knowing. This is experiential, firsthand, personal knowing. I have encountered the love of God. I have encountered the truth of God. I have encountered the power of God, and I know these things to be true. I know these things to be true. We know that God is love. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know this to be true. We look back over the course of our life, the last day, the last week, the last month, the last 20 years, however long, we look back over the course of our lives and we see God's loving hand at work. He provides for us. He takes care of us. He shepherds us. He's our helper. He's our, he's our benefactor. Folks, God is so merciful so merciful. Don't let the negativity, 
that, that your heart just always wants to bring up all the time cloud the fact that God is abundantly good and gracious, that he takes the ugly stuff in our life and he flips it and he turns it into things of joy and victory. Like our God is a good God. Your, your spouse is a blessing. Your children are a blessing. Your job is a blessing. This, this church, our, our gathering is a blessing. Our health is a blessing. Everything that we have, every good gift comes from God. He is a loving God, and it is clear. We know this. We know this to be true, and God is not a God who holds grudges. He's patient. I mean, so kind, so thoughtful. Man, he's providing something before we even know that we need it. And we know his truth. We know that God is the God of truth. He's revealed himself to us through his Bible, through the scriptures, through his son. He has not withheld anything that we need to know that is good for us. He freely offers wisdom and guidance. For our lives, how many times does a, do we remember a scripture or in that moment, God, Holy Spirit, impresses something upon us and keeps us from falling off a cliff? He gives us this truth and this truth sets us free. You know, oftentimes we say that the truth hurts and that's true, right? We hear the truth, we're confronted with the truth of God and it hurts, but the same truth that hurts us heals us. So God gives us this truth, it hurts, but it heals us, it breaks us free of sin and addiction and brokenness. So we know that God is the God of truth because he shared it willingly with us. We, we know that things go well when we listen to him. We know that things don't go well when we don't listen to him. We'll find that out starting in a couple of weeks. We're going to work our way through the book of Jonah. When he listens to God, things go better. When he doesn't, not so well. He's in a well or a big fish, whatever it may be. So anyway, and we know that God is the God of power. His will cannot be thwarted. Another way, in other words, he does what he pleases. Nothing can stop God from doing what it is that God is going to do. And this should be like a massive comfort to anyone who is a child of God. Psalm 138 verse 8, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. You know that God has very good plans for you for today, for this week. God has good plans, and he will fulfill those plans. That's good stuff. Like nothing can stop him from doing what it is that he's going to do. And they're all good things. They're all good things. He is the God of miracles. He's the God of the impossible. If he wants to heal you, he will heal you. If he wants to fix your marriage, and he does, he will. If, he, if you're sick, he will make you better. He can do whatever he pleases. So we know his power. You know, by, by example, my mom, like years ago, she had a cerebral hemorrhage. Most of you don't know this. The equivalent of a stroke. It was this big thing on the CAT scan. It was right there. And they were saying that when she wakes up, she is going to be radically different. Like she's not going to be able to speak or walk or anything like that. The very next day, she's standing, she's sitting up in her bed, and she's talking with all lucidity and, and clarity. They took another picture, and the entire thing was gone. And the doctor's like, that's not possible. No, yes, it is. Because our God is the God of the impossible. He's God of all power. So let me ask you, do you know this God? 
personally? Have you experienced the love of this God and the truth of this God and the power of this God? If you have, folks, glorify him. Lift his name on high. Number three, Christian worship means imitating God. Read verse four through eight. Their idols, referring to non-believers, non-followers of Jesus, referring to non-believers of God, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. You know what those verses teach right there? It's that we imitate that which we worship. We become like the thing that we consider most valuable. We ultimately begin to reflect that which we revere. We become conformed to the thing that we esteem most in life. True worship, true worship of the true God changes us. True worship of the true God truly changes us. Justin Martyr, Justin the Martyr, said long ago, True worship will invariably lead us to the imitation of these good things we have heard from God. So as we humble ourselves before this loving, gracious, all-powerful, true God, as we humble ourselves and we yield ourselves and we glorify him, it does something to us so that we now begin to reflect his character. We begin to imitate him. And we know that our God is a gracious God, right? Our God is the God of grace. So let, me, let, let us evaluate ourselves. How do you treat other people? If you're a follower of Jesus and you're worshiping God, and he's the God of grace, and you approach the throne of grace, well, should his grace now not be reflected in our lives? So consider how you treat others. Are you gracious? Do you build people up or do you tear them down? Do you build people up or do you tear them down? Are you forgiving to people or do you hold grudges against people? Are you gracious and forgiving or do you hold resentment toward an individual? Men, if I walked up to your wife and she were honest and I asked her, do you treat her as Christ loves the church? What would your wife say? And parents, if I went up to your kids and I pulled them aside and I asked them to be honest, could they say that you disciple them with the love of Christ, that you discipline them lovingly and mercifully, that you teach them the ways of God? And if I went to your workplace, if I went to your workplace and I, I went up to your coworkers and I asked them, please be honest, is so-and-so a follower of Jesus? Would they affirm that, or would they be shocked to hear that, they, that you even went to church? 
you know, how we treat people does actually expose if we're a worshiper of God. Because those who worship God, who worship the God of grace, grace starts coming out through our lives. A true worshiper imitates God. So are you a distinct worshiper of the God of grace? How are you treating other people? You know, we tend to, to, to think of worship as Sunday mornings and singing. And worship is so much more than that. It's how we conduct ourselves during the week. Do we honor God in how we treat other people? Number four, Christian worship means trusting God. Look at verses 9 through 15. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. Us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. God has promised these wonderful, great, good promises to his people, and God is faithful to keep all of his promises. So worship means taking God at his word. Christian worship means trusting God. It requires faith. And faith isn't some static belief. Faith, biblical faith, is active faith. It's actively believing. It's Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, in all of your thinking and speaking and saying and breathing, in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he shall make your path straight. So trust or biblical faith isn't just faith, but it's faithfulness to God. It's not, it's not that we get to live this life of independence apart from God. We get to live a life of dependence in God. It's choosing daily to follow what it is that God has instructed us to do. Trusting in his ways all the days of our lives. So do you trust God? Without faith, it is impossible to worship the Lord. So is your faith real? Is your faith genuine? And one way to evaluate if that's true is to just look at your life. What does your life show to be true? Does your life show that you are, in fact, faithful to God? Because if you are, then your faith in God is genuine and real. Number five. I'm, I'm, this is speed round, folks. All right, we're going we're gonna to finish this. Number five. Christian worship means loving God. Look at verse number one in Psalm 116, 161. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. You know, worship is not about ritual. Worship is about relationship. It is about knowing God and walking with God and hearing from God and being led by the Lord. Like it's not just going to a church service 
as good as they may be. It's not about doing this or that and kneeling. And I mean, those things have their place, but that in and of itself doesn't do anything for us. It is, do, does our heart genuinely long in affection and adoration toward the Lord? And, and why should it not? We should love Him who first loved us. Again, He's so good, so kind. Never gives us more than we can handle. He's with us every step of the way. He will not leave us, nor will He ever forsake us. You know, we, it says right there that we love God because He answers prayers. Folks, we love God because He answers prayers. And He inclines His ear down to us and He listens and He answers. And that's a God worth loving. And we know these things to be true as we, as we experience God in our daily lives. And that's why we sing. And that's why we praise. Because our hearts are filled with gratitude toward Him because of His great provision toward us. So, do you love the Lord? Can you say from your heart, I love God? For all that He is and for all that He has done. Are you amazed by how much God, in fact, does love you? Number six, the last one. Christian worship means calling on the name of God. So Psalm 116, verse 3 and 4. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. To call upon the name of the Lord means to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. In other words, to call upon the name of God means to call upon Jesus. To call upon Jesus. Joel chapter 2 verse 32 says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Right? Will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord there is all caps, so we know there that Lord is what? Yahweh. Whoever calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved, will be rescued, will be delivered. And you turn to Acts chapter 4. Verse 10 and verse 12 says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, that to be, to be able to worship God, we must first be saved. To be able to worship God, we must first be forgiven of, of our sin. We must be washed clean. Like all the, the godlessness and the immorality, all the unrighteousness, the, that which is in us that is unholy, all our sin, our guilt, our shame, the stain, all the things that we've done wrong and bad and thought that were wrong and bad, all of it must be absolutely purged from us before God will listen to a single word of praise that would ever be uttered by our lips. In the Old Testament, they, would, they had this temple, and they had these vessels, these things these, that, that had to be used for worship, and every single one of them had to be consecrated. They had to be washed and prayed over, cleaned, 
anointed with oil. And then, once it was set apart, then it could be used for worship. And it's the exact same thing with us. We must be consecrated. We must be sanctified. We must be anointed. And that, folks, takes place through faith in Jesus. That is because of the great exchange on the cross that Jesus washes us clean. It is the grace of God by faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross that our sin, all of it, all our immorality, all of it was placed upon him. So he took it. And then in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. He sanctifies us. He makes us righteous. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's in being forgiven. So when we call upon the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, for salvation, when we give ourselves humbly to him and we embrace Christ as Lord, we admit that we're a sinner and we confess that we need him, the Savior, in that moment, all our sin is purged from us. We're washed clean. We've become a new creation. We've been set apart. And now we can worship God. Because he saved us. And that in Christianity, that it's not only about calling on the name of Jesus to be forgiven of our sin and pardoned to receive mercy, right? It starts there. That has to happen. But that's not the only thing that happens. We don't only call on the name of Jesus for salvation, folks. We worship Jesus. Christianity, what makes it distinct is that we do, in fact, glorify the name Jesus Christ and who he is. If there's no other distinction between how we worship and how others worship, it's the very fact that we lift Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. I, I agree with the Jehovah's, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You should never, ever worship something created. Never under any circumstances should we worship an angel. In the Bible, we see where people try to worship angels, and the angels say, no, 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 uh-uh, no, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant along with you. Worship God only. So I agree with the Jehovah's Witness that we do not ever worship a created being. But folks, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is God. That's why we can trust him and what he did on the cross. That's why Revelation 5.12 says, Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Who's that a reference to? Jesus Christ. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You know, in Titus, Titus chapter 2, it says that our blessed hope the blessed hope of a follower of Jesus or of a true believer, the blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of him who is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, there is no doubt from the evidence of Scripture and the weight of God's word that Jesus Christ is Lord Almighty. Jesus is Yahweh. Johann Sebastian Bach, the great composer, the great musician, said, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God. So this is what a musician said about music, which I believe is so true. Like, I, I, I love this. All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music, but only a devilish hubbub. And what's interesting about 
Johann Sebastian Bach is that every time he started a, a new composition, at the very top, the very first thing on the first page, he would write J.J. The initials J.J., which stood for Jesus Juba, Jesus help me. And he would write and compose, right, what only Johann Sebastian Bach could do. And he would get to the very end, and he would write in the initials SDG, which meant soli de gratia. To you alone be the glory. And folks, if that's what Christian worship is, let's wake up every morning and write a big JJ at the front of our day. Jesus, help me. And as we glorify him, as we honor him, as we trust him, as we humble ourselves to him, as we believe in his love and his truth and his power, right? As we try to imitate him, we say, God, help me through this day. And all day long, we keep that up. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. And before we lay our head to bed, SDG, soli de gratia, to you alone be the glory. That's what makes Christian worship distinct. That's what makes it different. And that's what makes it right. So I don't know how you need to respond this morning. I don't, I don't know if, if you need to trust in Christ for the first time. You, you recognize that you're in sin. You've never been forgiven of your sin. I invite you. I urge you. I plead. Do that now. Become a worshiper of God. Let the, the grace of God wash over you. Have the great exchange with Jesus. Give him your sin and, and let him give you your grace. It's, it's way good deal. Right? The rest of us, if we've already made that commitment to pass, will, will we live as worshipers of Christ? Like knowing him and trusting him and imitating him, glorifying him, calling upon his name. Let us live like worshipers of Christ. So I'm going to ask everyone just to bow your heads and just going to give you 30 seconds to, to respond however you need to. And our praise team will close us out in a song. Lord Almighty, the great I am, Yahweh, the one and only self-existing, self-sustaining, self-emanating God, all-powerful creator, all-knowing, always there, and so loving. We give you praise this morning. We lift your name. We exalt you and you alone, Lord. We understand that we are not worthy of glory. So we say not to us, but to your name. Give glory, O Lord. Lord, I, I pray that we would be a people that would live not for our acknowledgement and not for our praise, but for yours. And that we would honor you, not just with the praise of our lips, Lord, but that we would honor you with how we conduct ourselves during the week 
at work, at home, with our spouse, with our children, with coworkers, at school, wherever we may be, may we be a people who worship you that are distinct because we know your grace. Lord, you are all to us. You are our Father, our friend, our Savior, our judge, our leader, our guide, our head. Lord, we give you all the praise, all the praise and glory and honor this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.